You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So, welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to be uh, talking about the basics of uh, meditation or giving an instruction in the basics. Um, I expect you actually already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to include the basics. We've been talking about the Manual of Insight, which is the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw Manual on Insight Meditation by the Vipassana Metta Foundation. And we've been in the chapter on purification of mind. Purification of mind means that the mind is not subject to the hindrances, that you're able to place your attention where you want to put it and keep it there without them scooping you out of the meditation. And uh, uh, in the previous conversation we were talking about uh, karnaka samadhi, which is the Pali word for momentary concentration meditation. It's the way... uh, one way of, of getting into meditation is to get into an insight practice uh, first, and one way to get into meditation practice is to come in through concentration first and then go into insight practice. Um, karnaka samadhi means momentary concentration, so actually when you're noting, so it's also kind of a, you could call it a noting practice, Noting is where you know where your attention is, you soak in and have the experience of the sensing. Uh, This is different than finding an object of meditation to concentrate on and maintaining awareness of the object of meditation. So in momentary concentration insight practice, your attention is just moving from uh, meditation event to meditation event, you're highly concentrated in the moment of noting that particular sensory phenomenon, and then in between, it is not so concentrated. Very different way of approaching it than developing this continuous one-pointed concentration and then moving from there into <coughs> insight practice. Uh, Mahasi is making the case for this as being equivalent to or just as good as. And um, because this is, uh, in some sense, historic, uh, this, the, the document itself that's been translated is, um, I would guess, 40-plus years old. Um, without looking at the date, maybe we should... Um, It doesn't say right here. Anyway, 
Mahasi was a uh, was teaching and and dominant in the middle half of the twentieth century, and died in the eighties. So uh, at that time, the idea that karnaka samadhi or momentary concentration insight practice could be considered as equivalent to a uh, ekagata-based one-pointedness concentration first meditation was extremely controversial. And so, in some sense, this manual is making the case for noting practice when it was not the dominant form of meditation. In the intervening time, of course, noting practice has not only become an accepted way of practicing, but it's probably the dominant way of practicing in the West. So totally absent of the difficulty that was faced by people advocating this um, because of the, the, the change in cultural acceptance. So we talked about attachment uh, last week. We're in some sense talking about the hindrances that come and, and corrupt the mind. So this chapter, Purification of Mind, Purification of mind means the absence of the hindrances, and he's describing in these passages a way of working at, with the hindrances as they arise. And this uh, sub uh, chapter is called Non Aversion and Aversion. Non aversion is a cause of liberation for noble ones. Noble ones gain liberation from the cycle of suffering by developing it. Aversion is a hindrance to liberation. When present, it hinders a noble one's realization of non-aversion on the path to liberation. For this reason, aversion is called a hindrance to liberation. One of the, th- the uh, three poisons, craving, aversion, and unconsciousness, um, greed, hatred, and delusion. The absence of aversion or frustration associated with the noting mind in insight practice is called non-aversion. This quality allows one to continue noting without frustration when unpleasant objects, unbearable pain, or other difficulties arise during practice until one attains nibbana and is released from the cycle of suffering. One of the things that was unique about... um, the Burmese style, and Mahasi in particular, is the belief that householders could gain liberation. Um, in many of the monastic traditions, it's only male monastics who can get liberated. Everybody else cannot. Um, but Mahasi uh, firmly believed and advocated for the liberation of householders, which was actually one of the reasons why I found him to be an attractive teacher I have not really ever had much of a calling for the monastic life. And I remember early on in in my developing of Vipassana talking to a monastic uh, who advised me that I was much too functional to consider a monastic life, that actually monasteries are for people who can't make it in the outside world. And if you have any chance of making it in the outside world, you should not go to a monastery, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, But the idea of liberation was very appealing to me. Um, Maybe you all have an idea of what nirvana is or what liberation is, what freedom is. 
uh, and uh, what can be useful in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of dialogue around this is to compare what you think it is to what it might be so that you're at least in the ballpark uh, of what it is because certainly my original conception of what uh, liberation might be was not um, really related to, to what it is. Um, I wanted to have a stress-free, problem-free existence where I got everything that I wanted. That was what I thought liberation was. Um, but this turned out not to be the case uh, necessarily. Um, one way to describe uh, liberation would be to be able to come and go from the experience of self whenever you wanted to come and go from the experience of the world whenever you wanted to touch to be able to touch into the source is how um, my teacher Shinzen would describe that to come and go from cessation into a fully manifested self whenever you wanted so Aversion is the not wanting of things. When you have the experience of something, you may notice uh, <laughs> the arising of the idea that you would like something else instead of what's happening. Or aversion arises and you would not like what's happening. Um, we're going to do some meditation tonight, uh, which is... Uh, a triple noting of uh, see, hear, feel. So first there's the noting for sensory clarity. What is the actual sensing experience? Is it activating visual, uh, auditory, or feeling uh, experience in the body? Um, first foundation, nama, rupa, thinking and sensing. In um, the second foundation of mindfulness, we have what's known as vedna or feeling tone. Vedna is uh, uh, related to the quality of the sensing experience. I like to think of it, um, um, geez, neurobiological terms, uh, a kind of processing speed that is associated with sensing experience. Um, unpleasant experience. These are all English translations of Pali words, and uh, the popular uh, translations which we're largely using were uh, really done uh, in England in the, the, the end of the 19th century, and they've, they've tended to hold pretty firm with that. Um, <clears throat> but I often find them not to be particularly descriptive of what actually is, is happening. So unpleasant is the, the term that's popularly used, but I, I really think of it more as urgent, needs urgent attention. And if you look at it from that uh, neurobiological aspect, processing speeds are different depending on the, the way that the sensing experience is interpreted. If it needs urgent attention, it takes less, less intensity of sensation, less duration of, of the sensation in order for it to be moved to the front of the queue. <laughs> so unpleasant material is always superseding all other, all other experience, and it's faster. So it's, uh, we're sort of evolutionarily wired to respond to unpleasant or urgent material faster than other 
sensing experiences. The bandwidth of consciousness is extremely narrow, and so almost everything that you experience sensorially is categorized as neutral, and almost none of it makes its way into consciousness. You have the capacity to sense, you have the object that can be sensed, and when they meet, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. But the bandwidth of consciousness is so narrow, almost everything doesn't make it into consciousness. It's all unconscious mm-hmm. processing. Um, using the numbers that were developed by a group of French neuroscientists, the body-mind has the capacity to sense at a rate of 11 million bits per second, so quite a chunk of data. But the conscious mind only has the capacity to process 16 bits per second. So in any given second of experience, you're getting 16 pieces out of 11 million possibilities. So when I say almost everything is a neutral experience that you never have awareness of, that's the vast majority of sensing. Do you think that it would be useful, say, to know what the um, parts per million of adrenaline was in the, in the bloodstream, and then to have the conscious ability to adjust that so that it's always optimal? Maybe a lot of the information that the body-mind is able to detect is in something that would be useful consciously anyway. Have you seen the photographs of the Tibetan uh, monks that are able to take their the automatic system of regulating the temperature of the body and manually controlling it. There's a famous photograph of monks sitting in the snow with a ring of melted snow around them because they've jacked up their body temperature hot enough that they can melt snow. Um, Would you spend 30 years of your life melting snow manually with body temperature I, I haven't found that to be something so compelling. <laughs> but maybe if I lived in a cave in the Himalayas, it would be more urgent. There might be the odd side effect to that level of study, though. Huh? There might be the odd side effect to that level of study, though, as right. far as controlling. You've been practicing it? Where are you? Uh... I got into a tub of ice and it felt pretty warm. Mm. Just for a second, though. <laughs> 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 but I mean, really warm, like hot. Uh huh. Oh, it was bizarre. For a few seconds, and then as soon as I noted that, then it got cold again. Out of that 16 bits, how is that partitioned off? Like, if my neck hurts. That's, we would consider that sensing like a big chunk of that 16 bits, yeah? Could be. Um, But it's a good question. About 10 million of the bits is in visual processing, external visual processing. So that whole back third of the brain processes visual input and forms it into the picture of the world that you're currently seeing. Um, About a million bits is... um, the sensing of the body, and then there's a hundred thousand to tasting, smelling, a hundred thousand smelling, a hundred thousand hearing. 
So maybe this is why people who can't see their like their bandwidth is already a tenth. It's already so hyper focused. Right. And then the brain is plastic. So it, for people who have no sight, the that back third of the brain begins to process other sensory input. So 16 bits, I, li I like to think of it as the uh, printer, if we're using a computer metaphor to describe this. Everything is processed, and then when everything is processed, all of the decisions are made, the decision is sent over to the printer, so you can get the readout on it. What is the evolutionary purpose then of this consciousness? And it really acts as a veto function. That at the last, last millisecond, just before you're about to take an action, it flashes into conscious mind and you have the choice of not doing it. That would be the purpose of it. So it doesn't initiate it. You don't initiate anything from consciousness. You don't organize anything from consciousness. All you do is, at the last possible second, realize that this is a dumb idea and stop yourself from doing it. Have you ever found yourself two words into a sentence that you realize if you complete it would be a complete disaster, and so you just stop and then immediately deflect what you were going to say? <coughs> So, 16 bits, 150,000 micro, 150, microseconds is the processing for unpleasant experience. Most Everything is neutral, so it never gets into consciousness. Then pleasant experience requires twice the intensity plus 500,000 microseconds. So it's more than three times the length of the sensing experience in order for it to come into consciousness. Uh, so that we are totally oriented around danger, dangerous material, and we have pleasant experiences if there's time, if we have enough time for it. And so it's easy to get stuck on a really negative jag of thinking and of feeling and of being, and it isn't that the positive experiences aren't there, it's just that the, the, the urgent stuff always supersedes everything else. Uh -huh. It's like how we have a negativity bias that's it, yeah. For evolution, yeah. Is it more important that you lollygag in the, the grass when the sun is shining warmly or that you're aware that there's a saber-toothed tiger crouching at the edge of the woods ready to eat you? So we have that bias. It's all about protecting the, the body. So craving, aversion, unconsciousness, <coughs> the three poisons. The next one that he talks about is brightness and sloth and torpor. Observing light is a cause of liberation for the noble ones. Noble ones gain liberation from the cycle of suffering by developing, by developing it. Sloth and torpor are hindrances to liberation. When present, it hinders the observation of light. For this reason, sloth and torpor are called uh, hindrances to liberation. Contemplation of sunlight, moonlight, starlight, and, and light that arises in meditation is called observing light. It can become, it can overcome fatigue or sleepiness. Contemplation of bright light overcomes dullness and sleepiness. 
then one can continue practicing insight. Well, this practice, with this practice, one obtains nirvana and is therefore liberated from the cycle of suffering. Hence, the, com- the contemplation of life is, co- is the cause of liberation for noble ones. When we talk about the cessation of suffering or the cycle of suffering, we're referring to the four-path model of liberation in the Theravada sense of this. The first path is called stream entry, and it's said that you're reincarnated seven more times if you get to stream entry. In Theravada Buddhism, uh, liberation is is defined as the eradication of the ten fetters, and it's divided into a four-path model of the eradication of the ten fetters. Um, So the first is the eradication of uh, belief in uh, a continuous ongoing sense of self. You see that there isn't that. The second is the eradication of belief that religious ceremony will lead to liberation. Uh, It's often coupled with the belief in God uh, eradicated in, in this moment. Um, in, in traditional Theravada Buddhism, uh, a uh, belief in God is uh, a uh, hindrance to liberation, and it's said that you cannot be liberated if you have that belief. Um, and the third aspect is uh, the eradication of the hindrance of doubt. Uh, doubt that this path will lead to liberation. and it makes sense that that would be eradicated if you've been liberated since you, you know that the path leads to liberation. So doubting that. In, in the hindrance of doubt is not a doubt about other things. Many things can be doubted and still uh, be, you could still have a liberated mind. It's that the doubt about the path leading to liberation is eradicated. How do they define God? Doubt? No God. Um, I'm going to go with a metaphysical being. Like a separate entity? Yeah. Uh huh. So, does one really, if you attain stream entry, do you really have a choice anymore as to whether or not you'll keep going on the path? Um, Actually, the turning point is much earlier than that. In traditional Theravada Buddhism, the 16 stages of insight or 16 stages of enlightenment, the turning point is considered the fifth stage, which is dissolution. Um, if you, in, in a lot of the commentaries, when you read them and you come to the fourth stage, which is arising and passing, so awareness of, of the in permanent nature of all sensing experience it's you're, there's always a warning that says you don't if you don't want to have to continue practicing for the rest of your life you should stop now and what is that what is that line of demarcation it's between arising and passing and dissolution so the fourth and the fifth stage in dissolution the arising and passing becomes so uh, you become so concentrated on the arising and passing uh, that the uh, perception of the barrier between inside and outside dissolves and you're no longer able to 
uh, form a sense of uh, a continuous self. You could not, for instance, be able to detect the chair from the body, the clothing from the body. It's just a complete flow of sensing experience with nothing fixated. Um, and so that perception of the whole, the whole fixated sense of self completely goes. And because it goes, you, and you've seen it, you can't unsee it, and then go back to a belief in a solid, continuous experience of self, which is why it's said to. And then, of course, how do you, how do you tolerate that without practice, I think is maybe also what they mean. How do you, we, uh-huh. Um, having less ambitions? Oh. Well, the dissolution experience is often mistaken for stream entry, so there's there can be some confusion around, around that. When you reform the body in coming out of a dissolution, uh, you go, you drop into what's known as the knowledge of the miseries. Well, you, you have often a, a very strong fear reaction to there actually being no body and nothing solid. Um, the second one is called misery and it's related to impermanence. Nothing is permanent, nothing is lasting, nothing can be counted on and, and so you come into this place of deep sadness that, that everything will be lost including your life and then that puts you into a these again are these English translations of Pali words. Disgust is the last one, and they 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 have never resonated very well with me. Um, I I tend to think of of dukkha as unsatisfactoriness. That makes more sense to me. But uh, as you familiarize yourself with it, you can choose what you like. There are three levels of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. The first is old age, sickness, and death. When you lose the ability to contact the body. The perception of a solidness goes, um, and you come into this really this deeply held, integrated sense that this is going to go. The second level of, of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness is getting what you want and losing it, not getting what you want and having to put up with things that you don't want. That's the second level. How, have you had the experience of really wanting something and getting it and then it not lasting? Have you really wanted to get something and then not been able to get it? And have you uh, had the indignity of having to put up with stuff that you don't want? <laughs> that seems like all there is! <laughs> And then the third level is this subtle, ongoing irritation that nothing is actually how you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. So it's a kind of two-pronged thing. Nothing is the way you would have it and you have to face up to not being in charge of anything. So when you come out of dissolution, if you're thinking that you've had the liberation experience and you end up in the knowledge of the miseries, that would be an indication that you've not had... Uh, stream entry, what you've had is 
dissolution. In stream entry, you go into cessation, the cessation of awareness, and when you come out, you, you watch the experience of self and world reform, and in seeing through your direct experience that happen, it eradicates any, uh, any um, belief you may have had that there was something solid, something permanent, something intrinsic happening. Um, you see self and world form out of this, the capacity to sense, but you have the direct experience of sensing without fixating anything. And this may not be making sense, but we make things solid by attaching to them. And if you don't attach to them, it's just a flow of, of sensing experience. There's no language, there's no objects, there's just energy, just movement. Um, <clears throat> so you fixate the world. When you come out of the cessation experience, you watch the process of the mind reforming the solid sense of everything, and you have the experience of it not being formed and then being formed, and you see in the formation of the experience of your own self and the experience of the world any distortions that you might put into it. Uh, so that if you don't hold yourself as this uh, gorgeous, wonderful, deserving of love being, you watch the, that imperfection, that judgment, that association of less than that attach to the experience of who you are. But because you've seen that and had the experience of yourself without any of that, when it reattaches, you recognize it as empty, that it's a conditioned response, not something that's actually there, mm -hmm. which is very freeing. Uh -huh. So aversion and attachment, are they, are they distant cousins or are they uh, closely related? Two. Are they <coughs> in the same spectrum? There, as a hindrance, you mean? Yeah. It is the group of hindrances. Yes. So it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. It is something that prevents this. Hmm? I think I've asked this question before, but this process that you just described, <clears throat> could this be during the course of one long sit, or this is the period of a couple of years, or...? My experience of it is it's pretty serendipitous. It's hard to predict how it will happen. I've met many people, say, coming into the meditation center, having had this experience with no practice and no knowledge at all of any of this stuff, wondering what the hell happened to them. Um, that's called being struck enlightened. Uh, pretty ordinary. But it's not really enlightened, it's just arising and passing. Well, the dissolution piece, but they could have had the actual experience of cessation uh, and watch that whole thing happen and just think that they're crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, or come and look for an explanation. There's a book by the, the former head of the Los Angeles Zen Center that uh, describes her doing the dishes and having the experience of cessation and coming out of it and not being able to reform a sense of self and it being disastrous in a sense because 
not being able to reform a sense of self meant she couldn't be the wife that she had been, she couldn't be the mother she had been, she couldn't be the employee she'd been. And they took her around to Western psychiatric facilities and the, she was told that she was having a depersonalization mm-hmm. event and that, that, that she would eventually recollect. Um, but it didn't resolve and then she went to her uh, uh, religious institutions were, which were Christian and they didn't really have much in, in the way of help and just by accident she was driving down Crenshaw past the Los Angeles Zen Center and she parked her car and went in and sat in front of the abbot and described this experience and he said oh yes you've had stream entry and this is what you do uh, so that the you know, in that context, she just began to practice Zen there, later became the, the head of the center. Uh-huh. That's more commonly described in Zen, right? Isn't it called Santori? This kind of like Kenshin. Kenshin. Um, You know, these are different maps. The Theravada map is one map, the Zen map is a different map, and they, they describe the process of this happening. But it's the same process. Um, that's a good question. Um, if you practice in the Theravada way, do you have a tendency then to have the big cessation event? And if you practice in the Zen way of practicing, do you have the walking through mist experience that drenches you eventually and you end up enlightened? Is it the kind of practice that reveals a kind of insight? And then how do you know which map to use? These are all questions. I like this map that I'm describing to you because it's what my experience has been. I didn't have to translate anything. It's just kind of the way that it happened for me. But then you have to, you're not me, and your conditioning is not mine, so you have to examine for yourself what is a good way to go. There are lots of different maps. I tend to like this one, and I talk about it because it's, it's so similar to what my my practice has been like. But it's leading to the same place. Again, a good question. I haven't been in two places yeah, that's true. to know. Mm-hmm. Is, is jhana practice, is that part of the this map, or is it part of a number to predate a lot of the different It maps? probably predates um, this. Certainly the Buddha... Uh, did jhana and was very adept at reaching the eighth jhana and discovered in being able to do that 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 was not liberation as he was thinking of it. And so he, he, he uh, continued practicing in a different way than that. Um, and really we're talking about these two paths. One is to develop jhana and go from jhana into insight practice and one is to develop momentary concentration through insight practice. We're all householders and so it may be more economical to do insight practice leading to develop concentration. Certainly that would be the case that uh, Mahasi is making. But also... um, in my experience uh, teaching here at Against the Stream offering basic insight practices um, that people didn't have enough concentration to do them. So 
so that there was a base level of concentration that was needed in order to even do the insight technique well enough to be able to to have the momentary concentration that's required for that that way of practicing. And um, and I know that culturally here the the dominant way of practicing is an open awareness way of practicing, and that doesn't necessarily produce the level of concentration in the short periods that people practice it that would um, likely make this kind of noting practice a, a real possibility. So I, I began to teach just a basic breath counting um, practice to develop a, just a basic level of concentration so that, that you would be able to do the technique well enough that you would begin to get the fruit of insight practice from it. And, uh, you know, it's really 10 minutes of concentration practice uh, every other day for three months is enough to develop that level of concentration where then you can move into the direct insight path. But I, I found that it, as, a, as a teacher that uh, without that minimum amount of concentration practice, people weren't able to, to have momentary concentration, that the hindrances that we've been talking about would infect the, the effort for moment, momentary concentration and uh, the fruits of insight practice would not then arrive. And people became frustrated in their practice because they weren't getting uh, the prescribed thing out of it. But then with that minimum level of developing concentration, the fruits of insight began to flow easily from practice. So you really also have to figure out where your uh, capacity for concentration is, and also paying attention to the purification of mind, that in the moment that you're concentrating, moment in that moment, is the mind free of the hindrances, free of the distractions what you want to do is to get into a rhythm of the noting practice that bridges it, bridges each of these individual moments of noting into a, a kind of concentrated mind that's similar to having developed access concentration or jhana, but doing it by this momentary concentration instead. So um, you begin the noting practice and then you may notice two or three or five minutes into practice suddenly it seems that the mind has become concentrated, whereas it may have, uh, as you began the practice, seemed scattered. Um, but, you know, we're householders, so we're coming in at the end of the day. We, the sloth and torpor piece is usually an issue. We're sitting down, we're beginning to practice. It's 8 o'clock at night, and we're sleepy. Um, the mind is agitated and won't settle, so that coming into that momentary concentration we're not able in that moment to purify the mind, that is to say, to make the mind free of hindrances so that it can actually be in the meditative experience. So you'll notice with me, I'm, I'm often offering a concentration period prior to doing the insight practice to gather the mind and then pushing into the, the insight practice, which is a kind of hybrid of the division between the two, I'm not asking you to go into access concentration or to jhana first. I'm just asking you to collect the mind uh, and then go into the 
noting practice. Is that thing that you talked about in the beginning about um, focusing on light as a solution to tiredness, is that related to what you were just saying? Yeah. You just imagine the sun? No, you'd look at the light. Uh, Does it have to be natural light? It doesn't. A lot of people do it with candles, you know. Have you heard of that? They light a candle and they focus on the light of the candle or any of those. Um, I'm, I'm an all sun, all the time kind of person. I live here because I want 365 days of sun. I'm willing to exceed the quarter day a year, but anything beyond that throws me into what I call California seasonal affect disorder. <laughs> Ten minutes of overcast and, you know, I need antidepressants. <laughs> I have bright lights that I have on my desk for days like the last week or so. It's been, it's been too gray for me. So I have a bright light that just blasts me with light. I call it my happy light. So it does it does energize you to have that. It's just a physiological response to it. Uh-huh. Um, so if, for instance, at the end of my day I decide to sit down and meditate and um, <coughs> I'm met with either fatigue or um, lack of concentration is it I tend to bear down and do the best I can with what mm-hmm. I have available do you recommend that or do you recommend just I'm not, not doing it at all and just coming back to it or making the light bright see this this is way too dark for me how is it for you this, the way the room is I like it really bright. So maybe it's the one bulb is out and that's why it's not bright enough. But I'm always jacking the light all the way up because it, it energizes things. This is too moody. <laughs> um, <coughs> so Um, we're going to do some triple noting um, practice. So first noting for sensory clarity. Um, So is it a visual experience, an auditory experience, or is it a feeling experience in the body? See, hear, feel. Uh, Are the labels. Then we're going to note for Vedna, feeling tones. And feeling tones, second foundation, refers to the quality of the sensing experience. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Most, I think, most sensing experience tends to fall in the neutral category uh, if it's visual or auditory. And uh, the body is often a mix of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant experience. So you may have a pain that would be experienced, the sensing aspect of it as unpleasant, you may have, uh, say, the, a feeling of the breath. Um, that would be neutral. Uh, the, the experience of temperature might be neutral. But then you might notice that a breeze is blowing and it, it's a pleasant experience across the, the skin. And then the third aspect is going to be whether you're craving something different than what is, you're aversive to what is, or you get caught up in unconsciousness. 
And most of the time we get caught up in unconsciousness, we end up in thinking. And so it's useful to note the thinking and then come back to the see, hear, feel aspect. We're doing noting practice, so we know what where our attention is, we soak in and have the sensing experience of it, and then it's helpful to generate an auditory label of which aspect of sensing you're dealing with. So auditory thinking for most people is inside the head between the ears or actually at the ears. So you generate the word see if it's visual experience. So visual experience, if eyes are open, which sometimes you do because you're falling asleep, it adds more energy, more light. (coughs) That would be one aspect of experience in sight space. The second aspect would be internal visual thinking. So most people have a blank screen, which is um, there. And then when you have imagery associated with thinking, you project it onto the screen. Some people also have a sense of the, the light coming through the eyelids. Uh, that's a different thing than the mental screen. And it's actually more related to exterior sight. You have a visual aspect of the outline of the body in its current position. Kind of proprioceptus of how the body is laid out. You have the body's location in its current environment. Most people would report this as a, it's sort of the view looking out. If you close your eyes, you can detect it. Some people have what's called autoscopia, which is they're actually outside of the body looking at the body, but most people would report this view of just looking straight out into the environment as a way of locating the body in the current environment. You'll have an image reaction to a local sensation in the body. Say, if I were to ask you to examine the pressure on your left foot, you might then notice also there's an image of the left foot appearing in the mind. And then there's an image reaction to exterior sound. So you hear something and there's a visual aspect of that. That would all be see experience. So you would know that your attention was in C experience, you would soak into the sensing experience, and then you would generate the word C. In auditory uh, experience, there's exterior sound, which is the soundscape around you. There's the clear talk of the mind. So you hear the voice inside your head, and you know what the words mean. That's the clear talk of the mind. Uh, Some people are able to detect a subtle vibratory activity in the same location, so somewhere inside the head, between the ears or at the ears. And actually what you notice if you focus on that is the cognition of what the clear talk will be precedes the clear talk, so that you know what the clear talk is going to be before it happens, and then you can watch that. If your attention is drawn to auditory experience, you soak in, you know that that's where it is, and soak in and then generate the word here in auditory thinking space. There's no need to um, uh, label the labeling. And then if your attention is drawn to some sensation in the body, so gravity, temperature, respiration, circulation, digestion, the efforting to hold the posture, or emotional experience in the body, 
then you would bring your you would know that your attention is there. You'd soak into the sensing experience of that, and then you would generate the label "feel" in auditory thinking space. Is that clear in terms of the basic technique of see, hear, feel? We'll do that for a, a little bit, and then we'll add to that vedna or feeling tones, the second foundation. So double noting, noting first for sensory clarity and then whether you find the experience of sensing pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then we'll do that for a little bit and then we'll do, we'll add the triple noting, which is whether you're craving something different, whether you're aversive to what is, whether you get caught up in the thinking or you come into equanimity with the experience of the present moment in which case you would label that. I like to use wanting for craving, not wanting for aversion, thinking for unconsciousness and peace or equanimity, just because I like short words uh, as the label. George, I was doing this earlier today. It Sometimes I forget what exactly the purpose is of exploring this. Well, you want to begin to tease apart the sensing experience that forms things into the solid experience the self and the experience of self because you and you also want to take up the 16 bits the more of the 16 bits you take up the less room there is for the creation of a sense of self so it's a it's a way into uh, the experience of not self a way into the experience of just sensing without fixating anything. So this would be a way of moving through the first five stages of insight. We could also add a fourth fourth noting, which would be to note whether the, the sense of self is there or not as you're doing it. But I think three is enough, right? <laughs> Don't fret over this. Just... Do the best you can. If you find that the, the see, hear, feel single noting is good enough, just stay there. Adding the second note is good enough and you can do it easily enough then add the third note. Is that okay? Will you tell us when we're going to second? I will. I, you know, once you get into a role with the triple noting, I really find it one of the, the most fun. <laughs> and then just adding the self-inquiry also is, is great fun. So we're going to do some vipassana or some insight practice. You're going to want to position the body in a posture that you can hold still without having to move. And this is accomplished by finding a way to balance the body so you use the least amount of muscle power. The muscles getting tired and achy over time requiring you to move. 
So a process of trial and error, finding a useful posture, uh, remembering it, finding it again the next time you sit down, refining it, re-remembering it, and in this way over time training the procedural memory just to settle the body in. Always a good idea to do a quick inventory of the body as part of a settling in process. So starting at the top of the head, relax the scalp, the brow, the eyes, the face. Let the jaw go slack, relaxing the tongue, straighten the spine, balancing the head. Relax the shoulders. Just let the arms hang down, arranging the hands comfortably. If you're sitting in a chair, (coughs) plant your feet so you have a good solid base. And if you're sitting on a cushion, arrange the legs so it would be comfortable for the period of sitting. Just let the breath go in and out as it will, no effort to control it. We'll use a little bit of breath counting uh, as a way of concentrating the mind. Counting from one to five on both the out-breath and the in-breath. So breathing out, count one, breathing in, count one. Breathing out, count two, breathing in, count two. Breathing out, count three, breathing in, count three. Breathing out, count four, breathing in, count four. Breathing out, count five, breathing in, count five. And then begin the count again at one. So the sensing experience itself could be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and you could want it or not want it, get caught up in thinking, or be at peace with it, because they're different functions. First is the quality of what it is actually, what is it, what is actually the experience of sensing, and what does that feel like, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then the, the, the mind reaction to that, which is something entirely different. So, um, for instance, sometimes the sound of the train, there's a quality to the sensing of the uh, uh, which I found unpleasant. Um, but the, um, but I was fine, wasn't bothered by it particularly. Um, I have thoughts. The hearing of the thought was neutral. I didn't mind the content of the thought so much, but it caused a anger reaction in the body, which was unpleasant, and I didn't want. So, you know, you really can get quite a nuanced in your picking a part of what's actually happening. Everything is interactive with everything else, so the visual aspect often creates auditory, which creates feeling in the body, and it just bounces along. And uh, so if you really free up your your awareness to just bounce with that sensing ball. It's just moving all the time. For instance, um, in breathing, there's because my chest is congested, when I feel the air in here, it's unpleasant. And the sensations in the throat are unpleasant. But the sensation of the coolness of the air coming in is pleasant. 
and then sometimes if I'm breathing through my nose, the sensation of breathing through my nose is neutral. So where actually is your attention in the moment of sensing? What are you actually soaking into? Um, are you then able to hold that whole experience, which you could if you had a, a wide awareness and then averaging it? Or what is it actually that's happening? And then what is the mind's reaction to that in terms of craving something different? The sensation, my body is actually not very comfortable right now. So all, a lot of the sensations are unpleasant. But visual experiences happen to be really kind of vivid tonight. The sensing of visual experience is perfectly neutral for me. I don't really have any aversion or any craving in the sensing experience, but I find the imagery fascinating, so sometimes there's a wanting for more imagery that arises in response, even though the sensing experience is completely neutral. Is that making sense? So you're actually pulling apart different aspects of the experience. Every experience is made up of all of those aspects. We're really just trying to piece them apart. If we can piece them apart and hold the threads individually, then we can watch how they come together and form the experience that we're having. Then we can see how those qualities are in it. In um, as a, a gross example, do you ever find that you don't want to go someplace and then when you get there you have a good time? Yes. So then what you're noticing is that the feeling response to going is not wanting. I don't want the feeling response. It's not that I don't want the being there and having fun. And so it can be often that because you don't have good clarity that the feeling the sensing experience of going becomes overwhelming and so you don't go. But if you could pull it apart and see that, oh, I do want to go, but there's this sensing experience that, that I don't want that is preventing me from going, then you can push through that part and go. But if you didn't know that actually the part that you didn't like was the physical sensation experience of going, not the going there or being there, you might limit yourself. Is that a good enough metaphor for it? So then you can think, oh yeah, this, this old body doesn't want to go because it doesn't feel good, or this young body doesn't go depending on where you are. <laughs> um, I often find that my body is is uh, a painful place to be in, and, it, and I, I can limit what I do as a way of trying to avoid that. But or I can try and come into equanimity with it and just go anyway. Mm -hmm. So do you try to avoid feeling the pain in your body or sensing it? Because it's always there. I don't consciously, but if I become unconscious and the body mind is recoiling from it, I can it can totally distort my behavior. Uh-huh. Um for me one of the things that also comes to mind is when I do this exercise, or I can say actually, it's a study also in arising and passing. Does that make sense? Sure. Any, as any sensing aspect can be viewed from that. That would be the fourth noting. You'd add the, uh, three, mar the three marks or characteristics of 
existence as the fourth note? Is this a selfing experience? Is this an arising and passing experience? Is this an unsatisfactoriness experience? And then what you may notice is that you're so consumed with piecing this stuff out that there's no experience of self because there's no bandwidth for it. You're just in the flow of sensing experience which moves you out of that fixated experience of self just into flow which is moving you in the direction of dissolution. In which, in the story you told, somebody can be in that state and still put one foot in front of the other, in fact, get to Crenshaw somehow. Yeah, indeed. You're in a, in a state of unfixated flow. It's not, it's not a great place to be in terms of functioning in the world. And actually, freedom would be to come from that state into totally fixated and functional, and then when you don't need totally fixated and functional, dropping back into that flow. And the, the, the ability to come and go from that is really liberation. The ability to come from totally fixated, brilliant manifestation of capable self and then drop into cessation when you don't need it anymore, with no clinging, no aversion um, between one state or the other. Not ever spacing out. Good enough. Um, this is deepening your practice, so I'm always advocating deepening your practice. And the main way that I think that, uh, or the one useful way to do that is to go on retreat. We have one uh, long residential retreat left this year at ATS, which is the one that I'm teaching up in Montecito at La Casa de Maria um, from the 26th of December until uh, the 6th of January, I think. It's 11 nights. I teach a metta vipassana style retreat, so the first five days will be pure metta, and then we'll go and do pure insight. The, I find that doing the, the first five days of metta really calms uh, the body-mind down, really centers it, really concentrates it, and then we're free to shoot off into vipassana. You can come for the first six nights, which would be pretty much all metta, and the, the last five nights all vipassana, if that makes more sense to you. But if you haven't been on a retreat this year, really consider coming. It's good to have at least one retreat a year under your belt. Um, Dave Smith and Cheryl Sleen have a retreat scheduled at, uh, for New Year's weekend, or New Year's Eve weekend, I think it must be. Um, if he's fully recovered by then or recovered enough to do it. And then uh, in January, uh, Mary Stan Cabbage and Joanna Harper are doing a woman's only retreat at uh, a Joshua Tree. But if you want to do a long, I, I like 10 day or so retreats the best, uh, a little bit longer. If you think about a week long retreat or a weekend retreat, you arrive, it takes you a day or two to settle in and then you get into it, and then the retreat is over. If you go 10 days, uh, it's like having three more sitting days added in. So you really get, you know, you have, on an 11-night retreat, you'll have 10 sitting days, which is quite a bit different than having a week-long retreat and having five sitting days. It's twice as, twice as many sitting days without having to stay twice as long. Anyway, take a look at that. 
There's a bunch of flyers out there for other classes that are coming. Take a look at those. Uh, setting up your daily practice, I do a thing called morning meditation at 7.30, which is a live conference call-in. And then there's a 25-minute guided meditation. There's some flyers on the bulletin board for that. Um, I, I know that it, not everybody's great at getting up at 7.30 and meditating for a half hour on the phone. So if you use one of the flyers, it'll give you a month of access for free. And then we, we do have a, uh, a $35 a month um, ask for that. Um, I'm also a big advocate of meditation centers. The insight path can often be challenging and it's useful to have friends that support you in your practice. If you've ever tried to get a friend who doesn't actually meditate to help support you in your meditation practice, usually you see the limitations of that right away. Why would you even do that is usually the response you get rather than some kind of support. So um, where can you come to meet people who also have a meditation practice, a meditation center? If we don't have a meditation center, you can't come and meet people who will support you in your practice and make it easier. We can't have a meditation center if you don't practice dana. When you come to the meditation center, dana is the Pali word for generosity. We really do need you to uh, be generous each time you come so that the lights can stay on, the doors can stay open. The rent in this space went up uh, $1,500 a month two months ago, so we're, we're needing to raise quite a bit more money to, to keep this space. Um, so we've crunched the numbers. Fifteen dollars is a, a good amount, we think, uh, for, to keep the doors open and the lights on. But you really should be practicing generosity at a level that's meaningful to you. So if fifteen dollars is an insignificant amount of money, then give more so that it has meaning. If fifteen dollars is a good amount, give that. If it's too much, give at the level that you can give. If you do, if you're not resourced at the moment and you just want to come, please come. We are, we're very happy as a community to support the place for you uh, if that's what you need. We take cash and cards out there at the desk. If you'd also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated. We'll see you next time. Thank you.